Good morning. So we're going to be in Ezekiel 16 this morning. Uh, And don't worry, Paul, we will still read Ezekiel 16. (laughs) And uh, with Ezekiel chapter 1, though, um, something to know about just about the book of Ezekiel, as Paul read from Ezekiel chapter 1, is that the book of Ezekiel is a very vivid, picturesque book. Throughout Ezekiel, God paints many, many pictures, both of himself and the reality of his relationship with his people. And Ezekiel chapter 16 is one of the most vivid pictures of that relationship. Again, this is a picture that God gives of the relationship, the reality of a relationship that exists between himself and his people. Uh, We sang the song, Give Me the Bible. And the chorus said, Give me the Bible, holy message shining. The Bible doesn't always say things that are easy to read, easy to hear, or beautiful to picture in your mind. Ezekiel 16 is one of the grisliest, nastiest chapters in the Bible. But sometimes God confronts us with the reality of sin and what sin does and what the end of a road looks like um, in a life dedicated to sinful living. Ezekiel 16 is a nasty picture. It's not a picture of God and his people having a working, thriving, beautiful relationship. Uh, But actually, it's the opposite. And we'll see that as the story plays out. Some things I want to portray, though, here, um, just by introduction, just historically, just in terms of time frame of the book of Ezekiel. Uh, The book takes place between 597 and 586 BC, around that time frame here. Uh, Jerusalem's not yet destroyed in Ezekiel 16. But just kind of for some timeline markers, the Exodus happened 1447. David lived about 1010 to 970. So that's about a 400-year difference between the Exodus and David. This takes place again 597 to 586. It's about 850 years, 850 years since Israel became a nation. And it's about 400 years since the time of David. So Israel's been a nation for some time now. But since the time of David especially, the nation has just been spiraling downhill and plummeting into a nightmarish condition, drowning in sin and corruption by the time we get to Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a prophet who was a priest. He lived in Jerusalem. But Babylon had been progressively taking captives from Jerusalem to Babylon. This happened in three waves. The second wave, Ezekiel was taken with other captives of Jerusalem and Judah. So he is not prophesying in Jerusalem. He is over, as was read, by the river Kebar in the land of Chaldea. And all of this is happening while Jerusalem is in its final years existing as a city before it would be destroyed by Babylon uh, in 586 BC. So keep that in mind. Jerusalem is about to be destroyed Israel has been unfaithful to God for hundreds upon hundreds of years. They're on their last threads of God's mercy, and God is imploring the people to see their condition and to recognize their need to repent uh, nationally. The city is about to be destroyed. I've titled the lesson, The Greatest Story Ever Told, though. And again, this is because God pictures his relationship with Israel as a romantic relationship, that he pictures his people as a woman, a bride. And I want you to think about good love stories, right? 
good movies, good books you've read that are good love stories. And I want to illustrate the importance of this chapter in two ways. Number one, really good quality love stories can really help define what we expect from a romantic relationship. It can raise our standard. It can help us understand better what love is, what love should look like, how people should treat each other, what romance should look like. And oftentimes those stories that have maybe a lot of drama or tension that's overcome or stories where there's uh, a relationship that's one against all odds, uh, those tend to become very popular, very good stories. But nothing is superior to what we read in Ezekiel 16 and God winning his bride in Ezekiel 16. The way that a good love story captivates us, redefines our standards, can help us understand what love is, that's what Ezekiel 16 should do for us. It should redefine what we understand is love as we read God's relationship with his people. Number two, when Eva and I were dating, uh, we weren't engaged, we were dating, we went to uh, one of her cousin's wedding and we were helping in the kitchen. And there was a woman working in the kitchen who was an older woman, she was a widow, and she was handling like the catering and all of this. And she was a sister in Christ. And as Eva and I were working with her in the kitchen, she reflected us, she reflected to us on her relationship with her husband. You know, and a lot of times that's the way people get to know each other is, you know, how did you guys meet? You know, what were the circumstances? You know, how did you guys fall in love? Well, this older widow reflected that in the first years of her marriage, her and her husband, they had gotten married very quickly. You know, he knew he wanted to get married. He knew this woman's father. He respected her father. And apparently he just really wanted to marry one of his daughters. He just really respected this man, the way that he raised his kids. Well, suffice it to say, she said in the first years of their marriage, it was so hard that she told us if God was not the rock of their relationship, they would have gotten divorced because their relationship was so, tumult so tumultuous, so difficult. But she reflected as they grew through that, as they persevered through it, that her and her husband had a bond beyond what she could have ever have imagined. And with tears in her eyes, she reflected to us about just the quality of her relationship, how much she missed her husband, how much he was her teammate in everything, and that she had a unity with her husband that was like anything un unlike anything anyone else could have. It was something very special. We went to a wedding for another one of Eva's cousins uh, a couple weeks ago. We saw this widow again. Little did she know that her story of her relationship motivated Eva and I to change our attitude about our relationship, to commit more to each other and to think more seriously about different aspects of our relationship. She didn't realize that, but we told her like, hey, you really impacted us. You really changed our attitude about our, about our relationship. And at that first wedding we went to, Eva has reflected, that was when she knew she wanted to marry me because of the story that this woman had told. Why am I saying all of this? Stories of good love, good commitment, when those stories work out and you see them thriving, it can change our commitment to people. In covenants, it can change our relationship with our spouses. When we read Ezekiel 16 and we see God's commitment to his spouse, the things that were overcome, the things he did, it should change our commitment to God. When we see what he did to win his bride's affection and the kind of relationship that came out of that, it should redefine how serious we are about our relationship with God. Eva and I were impacted by this woman that we hardly knew, 
reflecting on how God strengthened her relationship with her husband through adversity. That's nothing compared to how God overcame adversity with his bride. Just some introductory thoughts on Ezekiel 16. Uh, A word for Miguel in Spanish. Miguel here does not speak English, so I try to give a word of Spanish on an introduction to overview what we'll be going through. So, Miguel. Este es un capítulo de la Biblia en el que Dios ilustra muy vividamente su relación con su pueblo. Es espantoso y horrible. Ezequiel es un profeta de Dios que vivió unos 600 años antes de, de, de que naciera Jesús. E en la época de Ezequiel, la nación de Israel había sido infiel a Dios durante cientos de años. En este capítulo, Dios reflexiona sobre la realidad, realidad de estas cosas mientras espera lo que haría en Jesús para res- resolver el problema de la infidelidad de su pueblo. So we're going to read verses 1 through 16, and we're first going to see how God saved and exalted his bride. And again, he's illustrating his relationship with his people, picturing his people as a woman. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloths. No, I looked at pity on you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. When I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. I made you numerous like plants of the field. Then you grew up, became tall, and reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet... You were naked and bare. Then I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord God. Then I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, and anointed you with oil. I also clothed you with embroidered cloth and put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet. And I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your hands and a necklace around your neck. I also put a ring in your nostril, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your dress was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil, so you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty." Then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor, which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. So again, God pictures his people as an abandoned baby that he rescued, married, and glorified. Just picture this from the beginning here. In verse 3, God pictures his people in, again, this poetic, parable-like illustration as having no advantage. Before Jerusalem was was inhabited by Jewish people, they were inhabited by Canaanites. So there's a sense where their father, their mother, was from Canaanite birth. And Israel as a nation, Jerusalem particularly, 
Think about verse 4 and 5. Imagine a baby is born. And as they're born, their navel cord is not cut. Their umbilical cord is not cut. They're taken out of the hospital, and they're literally thrown out into an open field. Not washed, not cared for, but abandoned with no compassion whatsoever. And imagine this baby covered in blood, screaming and crying with nobody paying attention. And then in verse 6, after God says this baby was abhorred, everybody hated this baby, nobody had any compassion, God passed by hearing this baby crying, and I imagine as imperfectly as I can picture it, you know, God is passing by, hears this baby crying, and sees this helpless baby covered in blood, and he grabs this baby, covers this baby, takes care of it, and tells it that it's going to live. Verse 7, he takes care of this child, brings them to adulthood. He makes it so that they're numerous as a nation and had grown. But then into adulthood, God pours his love and resources into her. Notice verse 8. He entered into a covenant with this woman so that she became his. God claimed her as his own. So not only did God rescue this baby, but then in verse 9, he begins to wash her, washing off blood, anointing her with oil, clothes her with the, with the finest resources, embroidery, silk. In verse 11, he adorns her with ornaments, bracelets, a necklace. Verse 12, an earring, a ring in her nostril, a beautiful crown on her head. In verse 13, she's advanced even to a royal position. So it's not just that this woman is given a life of luxury and wealth. It's not, that, it's not just that she's adopted into a wealth of family and one child among many. She becomes the singular focus of this man to the point where she's exalted to the point of royalty. And even her fame in verse 14 goes out to all the nations. What did she have that was not given to her by God? Her life was saved by God. Her ability to mature into adulthood was given by God. Her resources were given to her by God. Her fame was given to her by God. Her royal position was given to her by God. Everything she was, everything, was owed to God and his grace and compassion. If God invested in her so much, what was God's attitude towards her? You know, the more you invest in people, the more power you give them over you to hurt you, to cut you down, to emotionally destroy you. And that's the risk of relationships, right? That's the risk of a covenant for better or for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health till death do us part, right? God is inherently taking on a great risk in entering into a covenant with this woman. But don't miss that God is emotionally investing in this woman. Turn back in your Bibles as a look ahead to Ezekiel chapter 6. We're going back, but it's looking ahead to the next section. In Ezekiel chapter 6 verse 9, as God is reflecting on his attitude towards his people, he says this, then those of you who escape, those who will escape from the coming destruction of Jerusalem being destroyed by Babylon, will remember me among the nations to which they have been carried captive, how I have been hurt by their adulterous heart, which turned away from me. 
and by their eyes which played the harlot after their idols, and they will loathe themselves in their own sight for the evils which they have committed for all their abominations. So I'm using the New American Standard. This is one verse, chapter 6, verse 9. I think the New American Standard does, uh, to put it frankly, a poor job of conveying the point of what's being said here. Other translations will say in verse 9, how I have been broken by their adulterous hearts. Another translation will say how I have been crushed by their adulterous heart. The idea isn't just that this has hurt me. The idea is this has shattered me. The the Hebrew word is the word for broken to pieces. God has been broken to pieces because of his relationship with his people. And you have to think, God is God. The God of all existence in this position in like another dimension, in the heavenly existence. And yet this God of all power, all majesty, all wisdom is crushed because of the investment he's made in his people. The more you invest in people, the more power you give them to hurt you. 15 through 34, the bride's degeneration. A lot of things that are said in this section are grisly, they're nasty, they're even pornographic in nature. But again, give me the Bible, holy message shining. God shines light on things that are embarrassing, that need to be talked about and exposed. With that, chapter 16, 15 through 34. But you trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your fame. And you poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. You took some of your clothes, made for yourself high places of various colors, and played the harlot on them, which should never come about nor happen. You also took your beautiful jewels made of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself, made for yourself male images that you might play the harlot with them. Then you took your embroidered cloth and covered them and offered my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread, which I gave you, fine flour, oil, and honey with which I fed you, you would offer before them for a soothing aroma. So it happened, declares the Lord God. Moreover, you took your sons and daughters whom you had borne to me and sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotries so small a matter? You slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. Besides all your abominations and harlotries, you did not remember the days of your youth, when you were naked and bare and squirming in your blood. Then it came about after all your wickedness. Woe, woe to you, declares the Lord, the Lord God, that you built yourself a shrine and made yourself a high place in every square. You built yourself a high place at the top of every street and made your beauty abominable. You spread your legs to every passerby to multiply your harlotry. You also played the harlot with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, and multiplied your harlotry to make me angry. Behold, now I have stretched out my hand against you and diminished your rations. And I delivered you up to the desire of of those who hate you, the daughters of the Philistines who are ashamed of your lewd conduct. Moreover, you played the harlot with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. You played the harlot with them and were still not satisfied. You also multiplied your harlotry with the land of merchants, Chaldea. Yet even with this, you were not satisfied. How languishing is your heart, declares the Lord God. While you do all these things, the actions of a bold-faced harlot 
When you built your shrine at the beginning of every street and made your high places in every square in disdaining money, you are not like a harlot. You adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all harlots, but you give your gifts to all your lovers to bribe them to come to you from every direction for, for your harlotries. Thus, you are different from those women in your harlotries and that no one plays the harlot as you do because you give them or you give money and no money is given you. Thus, you are different. So as I have on the board there, God's bride uses all his gifts to descend to the most horrific extremes of depravity. The extremes that are conveyed here I think it can be easy to dismiss this as poetry. You know, God's just trying to paint a picture. But I would really want to put in your mind that that's just the opposite. That when we read about Israel's narrative historically of the nation and its ups and downs, that's when we miss the reality. This, this is the reality. And for the sake of being able to pull lessons from what's happening here, I do want to concentrate on what God is emphasizing is happening between him and this woman who is his bride. She knows him. He's invested in her. He saved her from birth. She's been raised by him. She is intimately, intimately acquainted with him. He's been with her since day one. She owes everything to him and she uses every resource to prostitute herself to anyone and everyone. Notice verse 15 and verse 25, the double emphasis. Played the harlot with every passerby who might be willing. Verse 25, you spread your legs to every, every passerby to multiply your harlotry. Not only was this woman openly, this is no secret she's keeping from her husband. Not only is she trying to prostitute herself to everyone who would be willing don't miss verse 33 and 34 nobody is a prostitute like this woman you know god reflects on the fact that you know with other prostitutes they're at least being paid for the service you know not, not that that makes it good but what you're doing is you're paying others to come to you to play the harlot with you where did she get that money from where did she get those resources from? The things that she's using to bribe others to come to her, where did she get those things? From God himself. Blessings God gave her to exalt her, to show his love for her, are being used as resources to prostitute herself. We need to be very careful that we don't think about these things impersonally. James 4 verse 4 says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The reason Ezekiel is portraying this picture is his people have missed it. They don't see things like God does. In the same way, we can be so drunk on the world that we don't see the condition we're putting ourselves and we're trying to keep our hands in two different camps of loyalty. We can easily step into the same situation where we've been given so much more 
and are not giving God due allegiance, due thanks, and due praise. Not only this, but in verse 16 and 17, this is very gross, but again, for the sake of the point, it's important to see it. It's not enough that she prostitutes herself to every passerby who would be willing, bribing them even, not being paid, but paying others. That's not enough. She uses the clothing that God gave her, the ornaments that God gave her, and she builds male images. You know, not even real men, just images of men. And she dresses them up in order to prostitute herself even to these images of men. Now imagine, as hard as it is, God the husband. Notice in verse uh, 30, he calls her a bold-faced harlot. Why? He's right there. He knows it. He sees it. It's happening right in front of him. And it's not stopping her. She keeps going further and further to new extremes to the point where even in verse 20 and 21, not children of harlotry. Notice in verse 20, you took your sons and daughters whom you had borne to me. Verse 21, you slaughtered my children, not foreign children, as bad as that would still be. She takes God's children and burns them in fire as an act of worship to these images that she's created with the resources that her husband gave her as a sign of his love and adoration for her. She in turn is doing these things to him. Can you imagine hearing about the horrors of someone doing this to another person? Can you imagine if this was your brother or sister, your cousin, your friend, and this is the situation of their marriage? Can you imagine the heartbreak, the devastation, the anger, the indignation, especially if it is to someone who has done nothing but love, to try to reconcile, forgive? God has been giving every opportunity for reconciliation, and all of those opportunities have been used as license to take it to a new extreme. We have to be careful that we do not turn God's blessings into idols. Something as simple as entertainment. Can entertainment be a blessing? I think it can be. But can entertainment become an idol or a tool used against God? Think about phones, smartphones. Is a smartphone a blessing? Can it be used for good things? But can a smartphone be used as a tool? for sexual sin, for pornography. We have to be very careful that we don't use God's blessings and turn them into a curse against him. God's mercy. Can we turn God's mercy into a weapon against him in idolatry? Something that I've been guilty of, that I think we all have to be very, very careful for, is thinking, well, this temptation is so strong. I know God will forgive me. And so it's better for me to just give in and then God will forgive me and I'll just be able to move on with my life. Is that a fair thought of God's mercy? Or is God's mercy being used in that situation as a tool against him? 
we have to be very careful that we are not using God's blessings as tools to abandon him and to betray him. Verse 22. Where did this all come from? Why were these things happening? It can be easy to miss verse 22. You did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked, bare, and squirming in your blood. Satan wants to drown our memory of what is most important, what is most eternal, with things that are cheap and temporary. Israel was in this condition simply because they had forgotten what it really meant that God rescued her from birth, that he delivered her from her pathetic condition, being abhorred by any and everyone, being abandoned into an open field. She had forgotten what God had done for her. Is it powerful to remember what God has done, to renew our memory of his work? Is it powerful to be reminded of basic aspects of our salvation every day? Israel had forgotten those things. The end of the story, though, is that God will win his bride. It doesn't just stop here. I want to read really quick as a transition, verse 39 through 41, uh, 38 through 41. There's an interim here between where we left off and then verse 60, where we'll pick up, where God is emphasizing how he's not just going to leave her situation unresolved, that he is going to stop her from playing, playing the harlot. He will intervene. And that intervention is ultimately leading to salvation. Look at verse 38 through 41. Thus I will judge you like women who commit adultery or shed blood are judged, and I will bring on you the blood of wrath and jealousy. I will also give you into the hands of your lovers, and they will tear down your shrines, demolish your high places, strip off your clothing, take away your jewels, and will leave you naked and bare. Stop there. Back to the beginning. What she wants is ultimately brought upon her. She goes back to the condition she was first in. In verse 40, they will incite a crowd against you. They will stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. They will burn your houses with fire and execute judgments on you in the sight of many women. Then I will stop you from playing the harlot. And you will also no longer pay your lovers. What God is saying is this is going to come to an end one way or another. I will stop you from playing the harlot. But verse 60 through 63 is ultimately God's greatest solution to this problem. Beyond just his judgment that will put an end to the idolatry, God will do more in verse 60 through 63. Jump to the end of the chapter, if you would, with me. Verse 60. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed. When you receive your sisters, both your older and your younger, and I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant. Thus, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, so that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation. When I have forgiven you for all that you have done, the Lord declares, and the Lord God declares. God promises to win his bride back, not to abandon her, not to cut her off and be done with her. What's amazing about this is that God's solution is a greater covenant on his part and greater forgiveness. I want to ask you this. Verse 63 mentions, I've forgiven you for all that you've done. Is God not forgiving here? Is he not 
desiring to forgive? Is he not wanting to resolve the problem? So how is it then forgiveness comes later if he's wanting to do it in this situation as he's speaking? God is not speaking of passive forgiveness. He's not saying, I'm going to forgive you from a distance. It'll have no effect on you, but at least I'll have forgiven you. This is a reconciled forgiveness. That there will come a time when God will reconcile and resolve the relationship. She will be forgiven because she will receive him, she will seek him, and she will be reconciled with him. In the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 through 27, we're told, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he may sanctify her. Sanctify her from what? From where? Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Cleansed her from what? From what condition? That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. You know why this is the greatest story ever told? Because when Jesus died on the cross, he won this woman, this woman, this prostitute who is wore out from her harlotries, this woman who is addicted relentlessly to sexual pleasure, to idolatry. God cleansed that woman. God redeemed that woman. And in Ephesians 5, it's that woman by the power of God who could be holy and blameless, having no spot, no wrinkle, or any such thing. So I want us to think for a moment about how does this exalt God's character and love? In Luke 7, verse 47, Jesus says, He who is forgiven loves little. And the implication is he who is forgiven much loves much. You know, I think we all kind of know the idea There's no condition too corrupt for God to reach. But the reality is we need the boundaries of that thought pressed by what God has really done. Was this woman too corrupt that God could no longer reach her? Did God no longer love her? Was God giving up on her? Even though she was a prostitute unlike any other. Again, I think if if we're to visualize this in any way, it's unimaginable. It's disgusting to the greatest extreme. It just seems like it's exaggerations, but it is not an exaggeration. God loved this woman as she did these things to him. Can you do more than this to God? You know, the reality is part of Jesus taking so long to be sent into the world One lifetime isn't enough to demonstrate God's love. Not two, not three, not four, not ten, not a hundred, not a thousand. God demonstrates his love through millennia. Because it would take that long to show just how far he will go to redeem and to restore. This was over a millennia of prostitution against God. And he was still able to not only work with this woman, love this woman, but resolve the heart that was languishing within her. There is no condition too corrupt. There are no habits so strong. There is nothing that entangles us too strongly 
that God cannot overwhelmingly conquer it in Christ. The cross is the immediate reconciliation of hundreds of years of rebellion against God. But I want you to consider how this value, how this exalts the value of conviction. Notice in verse 61 and 63 of Ezekiel 16. You will remember your ways and be ashamed, verse 63, that you may remember and be ashamed. God's forgiveness gives conviction greater room, greater freedom. God's forgiveness itself is the most convicting thing. In Luke chapter 7, where that quote comes from, he who is forgiven little loves little, it's in the context of a woman coming to Jesus in the crowd of Pharisees and teachers of the law. And she doesn't say anything. She's crying at his feet. She's weeping behind him, wiping his feet with her hair. And the idea is she simply understands she is a sinner. And because she sees Jesus through that conviction, she is drawn to him. She is not withdrawn knowing how much of a sinner she is. It is the very reason why she is emboldened to approach him with such humility. Listen, we can so easily get into a mentality where we fear conviction, where we fear being guilty. God's grace gives us the freedom and the safety to know as we embrace our conviction, there is greater grace on the other side. Ezekiel 16, 60 through 63, God would convict this woman in a way that would draw her forever near to him in covenant. This exalts the value of conviction. And finally, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. God gives us all a past to be ashamed of. No matter what we may perceive about ourselves, God gives us all a past to be ashamed of, just like this woman. Whether that be associating ourselves with the images in Ezekiel 16, being convicted by what was done against God through sin, Read Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 7 with me. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Notice this. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him, seating, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why has God done that for us? Is that just to encourage us, be a beautiful picture? Or like Ezekiel 16, does God's work of forgiveness and redemption give conviction greater room to grow? Notice verse 3 again. Is any of us exempt from this? Even if we were raised with believing parents and tried to do our best through our youth to serve God and Maybe we exist, existed in a safe environment. Verse 3, is anyone exempt? The key to the gospel, as we talked about in the Bible class, unless we see the depth of our need for mercy, we cannot see God. 
how far that mercy goes depends on how far we're willing to seek it. Ezekiel 16 is a powerful picture that encourages me, and I hope it encourages you, to be more convicted of what sin does, has done, and how far God is willing to go to restore us from the condition it puts us in. That's the lesson for this morning. If you're here this morning and you see your need to be reconciled to God, if you're convicted that you see that you are separated from God, don't let a day go by without obeying the gospel, being redeemed and being restored to God. God has made clear that if we're willing to accept him and his plan to hear what he says about Jesus being Lord, to receive his message of truth, to confess Jesus as Lord, to put on Christ in baptism for the remission of our sins, he will restore us and redeem us in ways that go beyond what we understand. But if you're here and you just need the help of the church to confess sin or a need for encouragement, please bring that forward. We stand and sing song of encouragement.